Here's what we're about to do this week and next week, just as a heads up. We're going to study the same passage twice, which I've rarely done. Um, we're going to do it twice. So this, this chapter two, the prayer um, in Jonah's story, we're going to consider it today in one way. And then we're going to look at it literally again, the same passage next week, uh, but in a totally sort of different way. And, and the reason I want to do it is sort of a, a macro and micro study of this passage, if that makes sense. Tonight is the macro view of Jonah 2. Next week will be the very micro view. Um, in, um, in Photoshop terms, uh, tonight is looking at the image at 100%. Next week is zooming in to... 6,400%. Or I think now it's 12,800%. That's how much you can zoom in. Okay, that's next week. We'll zoom in next week. Uh, let's read the passage. Starting Jonah at the very end of chapter 1, going through all of chapter 2. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. One of my favorite authors uh, and really a kind of a spiritual giant uh, in this country over the last century named Eugene Peterson passed away a few months ago. Uh, Eugene Peterson has written countless books, over 30 different books, and, and he was a local pastor to his congregation in Maryland for about 30 years. Um, just a, a great guy. And at Peterson's funeral, his son did the eulogy. This was back in October. And he said at the memorial service that his dad had a, a little secret, uh, a little secret that, that he knew as his son that he felt like he had really kind of used to trick the world. It's really interesting. He, he said he had only one actual message, one sermon. And he said that he preached it many different ways and wrote about it in all these books, but really it was just one message over and over again. This is the quote from the eulogy. He said, it's almost laughable how you fooled them How for 30 years every week you made them think you were saying something new. But dad, I knew your secret. I knew that you only had one message. Because you would come into my room and tell it to me every night when I was in bed. The same message over and over again, which is this. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. 
I'm sure you've picked up by now, if you've been with us, that that's a big theme for us this semester. God loves you. He's pursuing you. That's the story of Jonah. God loves Jonah. And he is relentless in his pursuit of Jonah's heart. God even loves the Ninevites, and he's relentless in his pursuit of them. We'll get there as the story goes on. God is coming after them with a message of hope, even his enemies. I wanted you to know that that's true for you this semester. That if you were in Christ, that you can know that you are so loved. God is coming after you. He is relentless. He's on your side. But here's the thing about this passage. For Jonah, up to this point, it's been really theoretical. It hasn't really been an experiential knowledge. It's, been in, it's, it's kind of like truth in theory out there. Doctrine sort of for other people. Distant truth. But in this passage, I think the doctrine becomes person, personalized for Jonah. It becomes experienced. Because Jonah begins to experience God's mercy for the first time. And when you experience God's mercy, it has to change you. It has to change you. So before God was calling Jonah now to go and preach mercy, he had to experience it. So for Jonah, the fish thing serves as like a co-op for Jonah's future preaching position. He had to get some training in. It's like the clinical rotation of mercy so that he could then go into the real world and, and understand what he's doing. Be certified to minister. And so God sent this fish to swallow him whole. Now, I felt like we should talk about the fish thing. You want to talk about the fish thing? It's interesting, right? The, this miracle of Jonah being swallowed by a fish and him living, as the text says, for three days and three nights and then vomited out on the other side of that time to preach another day. Now, let me just say a couple things. Uh, one, our Bibles, when it talks about the fish, it doesn't, most of our translations say fish, but like the word behind fish is more like sea creature. I don't know if that means any difference to you, but that's what it is. It's a sea creature. We've kind of like personified this fish to be a certain kind of fish, maybe even a well. And you picture the drawings as a kid where you've got Jonah and he's got like a campfire going inside the belly of the well, right? And there's like other little fish that he's cooking on the campfire and he's like taking notes and in his moleskin journal. And there he is. In, but like the word in scripture is sea creature. What was the sea creature? I don't know. I don't know what it was. Um, I think it was real. I think it's a historical event. Um, Jesus seemed to view it that way. I think even if we were like to have Jonah in the room with us tonight and we don't, by the way. We don't, but talking about miracles. If Jonah were here and we were like, Jonah, hey, what's up with the fish thing? And he would be like, I don't know. I just know that I was sinking and I was drowning and something ate me and I didn't completely die. I thought I was going to die and I didn't die. And then some days later I was back on land. Like that's how he would see it, right? Does that make sense? Like he was swallowed up and he was delivered. That's sort of the, the fish thing. We could argue all day long about can a man survive in the belly of a well and, and that sort of thing. And, and there are, I mean, there are tales out there. There are tales of similar things happening to people. Uh, even in Jonah's day, there were stories circulating around about a man who something similar happened to him. But here's, what, here's my point right now is that you and I both know one thing. This story ain't about the fish, right? 
This is not about the fish. The fish has what one commentator, I really like the wording, has a minor walk-on role in the story. Shows up twice. This story is not about the fish. The fish is a, is a conduit of God's powerful work in the world. A work of God in Jonah's life. This is not about the fish, but it's about the miracle of God's deliverance. And I'll say that much of the issue behind the historicity of the fish is really a much deeper question. And the question is this. Can God really do miracles? Right? That's really the question behind the fish is can God really work miraculously in the world? Do you believe in the supernatural work of God? That is a a very important question. C.S. Lewis said that unlike other religions, if you don't accept the miracles of Christianity, Christianity itself falls apart. But he says you only have to really believe in one miracle and then all the other miracles actually fall into place. And that's the miracle of the incarnation. God became man. It's the most outrageous miracle in the scriptures. It's not the fish. The most outrageous miracle in scripture is that God became man. Every other miracle is attached to that one. And so if you believe in that one, the others can fall into place too, including this one. Because all of them point to the greater miracle. That's especially true for Jonah and the sea creature, I think. Uh, As Jesus himself said about this text, he says something greater than Jonah is here in the story. So let me say, I do hope that you believe in the supernatural work of God. I hope you believe miracles can happen because unless you believe that God can work miraculously in this world, then you will never otherwise experience his miraculous grace for you. Because the fish part of the story is not the real miracle anyway. Sinclair Ferguson uh, said in this, about this passage that the deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish, but in the heart of the prophet. He said not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. And that's the miracle in this passage, if we're honest, is that God is still pursuing Jonah at all. You know, Jonah has shipwrecked his life. He's abandoned God, completely run the other way from him. Yet God is after him. That's the miracle in this passage. Despite his rebellion, despite his hatred, God is coming after him. And that's the miracle in our lives too. Jonah said he cried out to God and God heard him. You heard the the verse, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. That is a miracle, right? It makes me think of John Newton's famous conversion story. Newton uh, was, of course, a sailor and a terrible man. A terrible man. He once wrote that he had, quote, the ambition of Caesar to rank in wickedness. That's what he said of himself. Newton was a sailor and eventually captain of cargo ships, including, as many of you know, he was the captain of, uh, of slave trading ships. And it was on March 21st, 1748, while he was aboard the Greyhound, the ship that he was on, that, that this storm came. And it crashed into his ship. He was actually asleep in the boat. Sound familiar? And the storm started Cutting through the boards of the ship, water rushed into his room, woke him up, 
And so he went up to the deck and started helping people get water off the boat as quick as they could before it would sink. Many of his fellow soldiers died that night. And he was converted that night. He said he remembers praying a very simple prayer, Lord, have mercy. And he was struck by his own words. He had never thought to pray like that. He had, he had disregard for God up to this point. But God had regard for John Newton. He was at work in him. And we know throughout history, he was very much at work through him. Listen, God is at work even when we're running. He doesn't run. He is patient, or he doesn't run away. He runs towards us. He is patient, and he is loving. He is forgiving. Keller, the name of the book that uh, he does about Jonah that I've been reading through is called The Prodigal Prophet. And the reason he calls it The Prodigal Prophet is because he sees all these parallels between Jonah and the younger brother of Jesus' famous parable. It's really interesting to think about. The one who uh, takes his early inheritance from his father, and he runs away. Right, And he squanders his wealth in this wild living, rebellious living. Does the father abandon the son during that time? If you're familiar with the story, of course not. When he comes to his senses and he's eating the pig's food and he's like, I got to go home. And he goes home. Where's his father? His father's running toward him. Running toward him to embrace him. It's a picture of grace. Here in Jonah, the father is running, running after the prodigal prophet. Jonah cries and the Lord hears him and he intervenes and he delivers him. That's the miracle. Now we're going to go more in depth, obviously, into the prayer specifically next week. We're going to look at some of the words of the prayer. But the the question behind this moment of Jonah's life is simply this. Will this grace change him? Will this experience change him? Because there's a very real difference between grace observed and grace experienced. Let me illustrate it this way. Back in December, Kelly and I got to go see Hamilton for the first time. First time. We're going to go 20 more times. Um, It was so great. We went because you guys, many of you were a part of that and you sent us to go see Hamilton. It was really great. I wondered as I, I was, as I was preparing to go see Hamilton, and I did prepare, I, I wondered like, what the experience would be like. I, I really like, thought through this because I'm, I'm so familiar with the soundtrack, as many of you are. I've listened to that thing a billion times. And the soundtrack, from my understanding, was the play. Like, it is the musical. All but I learned about 30 seconds. All but about 30 seconds is on that soundtrack. So I was so familiar. I knew who had each line. Like I knew what was coming. I knew the story really well. And I wondered what it would be like to actually see it. And I thought there wouldn't be much difference, foolishly, in my mind. I thought, but it was so different, right? It was so different knowing the story and hearing it versus seeing it live on stage. The one scene that comes to mind uh, was in the scene when, when Hamilton is singing Hurricane. And it's this beautiful song in the eye of the hurricane. There is quiet. And, and he's in this moment on the center of the stage. And at first, it's only Alexander Hamilton singing. Spotlight is on him. And he's in the middle and he's singing, In the eye of a hurricane, there is quiet. And you're just watching. 
And then all of a sudden he's joined by members of the cast and, and they, they're carrying props. If you've seen it, you, you know what I'm talking about. But for those of you who haven't, let me let you know. So they're carrying props out on the stage and he's surrounded by all these other actors. And they're holding things like books and lamps and um, chairs and stuff from the stage. Because the stage is built with these concentric circles that can spin different ways. And so as the song progresses, you have Hamilton right in the middle of the, the stage and all these other folks around him with props and everything's in slow motion like he's in a hurricane. And so things are spinning in all sorts of directions around him. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene, really moving. Two things about that scene. One, that moment of Hamilton on the stage is kind of how I think about this prayer. It's like Jonah's world has come to a screeching halt as he's in the belly of this fish and everything is spinning around him in slow motion. And there's this meditative prayer that arises out of that moment. Again, we'll talk about some of the the significance of these words in this prayer later. But the second thing about that is there's such an incredible difference between how I imagine that scene to look versus what it was like to actually experience it in real life. This is Jonah. The grace of God has been a distant truth for him. Sort of a a doctrine that he's known about. God's mercy in a theological sense. Until chapter 2. Until the miracle. Now mercy in theory has become mercy experienced. Salvation was a distant truth, but now it's a present reality. Because Jonah couldn't preach mercy until he had received mercy. It's the difference of being really familiar with the soundtrack and actually experiencing the play. This passage was intended for another audience first before it was intended for us. You you may know this is true of all of scripture. This is a really important truth when it comes to studying scripture. There's an original audience and then there's a modern audience. Think about, you know, this to be true. If you think about some of the Paul's letters, like Paul's letter to uh, letters to, to Timothy, Paul was writing to a person, Timothy, and it had real implications for that person and that person and that place and that time before it had significance for us. And we need to understand kind of where Timothy was before we can understand how it applies to us. That's important. Like Acts, we studied Acts last semester. Acts was written to this guy named Theophilus as a defense of the faith. It was a defense of the faith in the first century before it was a defense of the faith in our context. The same is true for all of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written for another audience, not for um, 2019 Clemson College students. Like it was not written for you originally, right? It was written for Israel. And Israel would have all of these texts at various times of their history that would come to teach a very important lesson or a a reveal a truth about God. So I mentioned earlier that Jonah was to serve as a mirror for Israel. They were to look into this story and have a question on their minds. And here's the question for Israel. Will God's grace change them? Will God's grace, their experience of God's grace and his mercy have an impact in their life? Will his patience with them affect the way that they live with one another? Will God's message of love and grace inform their message behind their mission in the world? Will they go and tell the world about how good their God is the way that God was calling Jonah to do? The message that God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. But by God's providence, this message isn't just for Israel. Of the Old Testament. This message is for the church today throughout the world. And for you, if you're a Christian, this message is for you. But only as we look back and see that the salvation for Jonah isn't the only miracle in the passage. There's something greater than Jonah here. 
In Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12 is a hugely important text when it comes to understanding Jonah. Jesus is preaching to a crowd and there are these scribes and there's these Pharisees and they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trick him and and they want him to do something that they can press charges uh, on so that they can have him arrested and maybe even killed. And so they come to him, they, they ask this question, they say, teacher, will you show us a sign? Note, the same word for sign is the word miracle. They're asking Jesus to do something fancy out here so we can catch you in your powers. They want him to do something extraordinary. And this is how Jesus responds. Listen to this. This is Matthew 12, verse 39. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it for their repenting at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I know that's a lot of technical language and we'll we'll think through it a little bit together. But remember Lewis's line. Lewis says, when you begin to understand the greatest miracle, all the other miracles fall into place. He actually goes on to illustrate that by saying, uh, and we had a debate about this with, with, uh, I had a debate with one of my daughters about this line earlier today. Um, He goes on to say that when we look at the sun, uh, we are not convinced that the sun is shining in the sky because we see the sun itself. Because we don't actually see the surface of the sun. This was the argument. She was like, but we see the sun. <laughs> yeah, but, you know. He says, you don't, we don't know that the sun is shining because we see the sun itself, but because through the sun we see everything else. That's Lewis on miracles. In other words, when we look at the Son of God and the miracle of the Son of God entering earth, through the lens of that miracle can we begin to understand and see everything else. So what is the sun at midday that Jesus helps us to see? It's this greatest miracle. And he said it has something to do with the sign of Jonah. So Jonah, here's the comparison. Jonah was a prophet who was called to preach to his enemies a message of reconciliation to God. But he ran from his call. But Jesus is a prophet who is called to preach a message of reconciliation to God's enemies. And he doesn't run from his call, but he runs into the land of his enemies and loves them and serves them and lives with them, teaches them, confronts them. And then they they kill him. The Pharisees were looking for a sign so that they could kill him. And Jesus says, here is your sign. I will be thrown into the depths just like Jonah. And as Jonah was in the deep for three days and three nights, so I will be. In the depths of the earth. Now, don't get too caught up on the three days and three nights. There's a lot of technicalities in the ways that um, Jews would use a phrase like that versus the way it would in Jesus's modern audience. We could do a whole study about that, but it's almost an idiom. It's almost a way of saying, I'll be six feet under. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, a, it's a sign that they're really dead in the ground. That's the idea. And so here's the comparison. I like Keller's words here in his book. He says, when Jesus calls himself greater than Jonah, he refers to the three days and three nights of Jonah in the deep. For on the cross, Jesus recapitulates the suffering of Jonah, but to an infinitely greater degree when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jonah went into the depths of the sea in order to save the sailors, but Jesus went into the depths of death and separation from God, hell itself, in order to save Jonah. Jonah is crushed under the weight of the waves and breakers of God's waters, but Jesus was buried under the waves and billows of God's wrath. Jesus said that something greater than Jonah is here because Jonah was brought out from the depths through a great miracle, yet a greater miracle happened on Resurrection Sunday. When Jesus was raised from the dead for our salvation, he was delivered from death so that you and I actually could live with him. That is the greatest miracle, y'all. That's the one that makes sense of everything else. The miracle that God loves you. That he's on your side, that he's coming after you and he's relentless. And he's come after you through his own son who lived for you, died for you, rose from the dead for you. This is the miracle that gives light to everything else. And so we have to ask the question. We ask this question as we think through some some of the application tonight. If you know that you were once an enemy of God too, because of your sin and your rebellion and your running, and you've received this message of reconciliation, how has that grace changed you? How has it changed you? We see very soon in this story that Jonah's repentance in this passage seems like kind of repentance. He's changed, but how much has he changed? It's hard to say. We'll get into those passages. But what about you and what about me? I took our girls over at Christmas break to see the new Grinch movie. And uh, it was good. It was really good. It was much better and a welcome upgrade from that creepy Jim Carrey thing that happened a few years back, right? Somebody gasped in horror that I said creepy. But, uh, you know, it's an animated movie. I don't know if many of you probably haven't seen it yet. It came out on DVD today, I do believe. Redbox sent me an email about it. But nevertheless, I'm, 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 I'm going to spoil it for you. Um, the Grinch's heart grew three sizes. I know. Okay, that's the spoiler. Here's what happens at the end. You know the story, and this one's like a lot more close to the books, I think, than, than the others have been. But there's this, let's just say there's this little girl. There's this little girl in the story who's very kind to the Grinch. And she is, is gracious to him. And in the end, he ends up going to this big Christmas dinner party in her home. And it's this really beautiful scene, and there's this great quote where, where the Grinch stands up at the table, kind of awkwardly, and he, and he says, can I just say something? And then he launches into this monologue. I want to read you a quote. He said, I spent my entire life hating Christmas and everything about it. But now I see it wasn't Christmas that I hated. It was being alone. I'm not alone anymore. And I have all of you to thank for that, and especially this little girl right here. And he turns over to Cindy Lou Who and to her mom, and he says to her mom, Ma'am, your daughter's kindness changed my life. It's a really touching scene. For the Grinch, grace is what changed him. Grace, the girl's kindness, changed his life, he said. So what about us? Has kindness gripped your heart and changed your life? Think about some of these words. Mercy, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, 
love, justice, patience. These are not just theological ideas. Distant truths that you should know only from a distance and be able to talk about and point to Scripture. These are necessary promises and evidences that you have been changed. Experiential knowledge that God is calling out of you and out of me. So how can we see has grace changed us? I'm going to deal with a a whole set of those things next week in our relationship with God. But I want to deal just tonight with our relationship with others. Interpersonal relationships. How can you know that grace has changed you? Think about the way you relate literally to the people around you. If you've received mercy, you offer mercy. Partakers of grace become dispensers of grace. You don't look down on others with judgment, but with compassion. You don't see yourself as better than the people around you. But you see that you are in desperate need of salvation from God on high. And he came after you. If you've received forgiveness, you are much quicker to forgive others. Even your roommates when they do that stupid thing that roommates keep doing, right? You understand that forgiveness comes at a cost. And the cost of your forgiveness was Jesus' blood. What might it cost us? Something a lot less than that to forgive our friends. It doesn't mean forgiveness is easy. It's never easy. It wasn't easy for God, right? But forgiveness is one of these things that has to come out if we are forgiven. Let me give another John Newton quote. He says, whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry nor harsh or critical of others. He will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there is a difference, it is grace alone which has made it. He knows that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. And under all trials and afflictions, he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have ever deserved. To put it simply, forgiven people forgive people. Loved people love people. Found people seek to find people. If we receive this one message that God loves you, he's on your side, he's coming after you, he's relentless, then we begin to preach that message to the world around us in whatever ways God calls you to do that. To turn to our friends who aren't Christians. To look at a culture that's lost and to say God loves you, he's on your side, he's coming after you, he's relentless. And to give them a message of hope. I'll end with this thought. If any of this is convicting to you, then good. Because it is for me. Like, if this is hard for you, if you're just kind of going through like, oh, oh, yeah, uh, you're, you're in good company. Not because I'm there, but because we're seeing it right. Like grace has to grip us to the degree that we understood Jesus really came for me? Me? Are you kidding me? Does he know me? He does know you. And he knows all of this and so much more, right? And he came for you. It's a sign if you are seeing your sin for what it is. We may even call it a miracle that God would allow you to see areas in your life that aren't honoring to him. It's a sign that God is at work. 
As I've thought through uh, this message this week, uh, I've had to think through me, like these same things and, and others of where I've not been patient, where I've not loved even the people I love most in my own home, I'm not living with my wife in the most understanding way. I'm not patient with our girls when they just don't get on my schedule or don't do things the right way. With many of you, I'm not patient enough with you. I don't love you well. Think of all the different people that I ignore in my life and walk by who are hurting. God's grace has to grip us to evaluate our relationships in light of how we have been loved. And so if you're with me in that, let me encourage you with one more part of John Newton's testimony. I know I got a lot of Newton in here this week. But one more part of his story, and this is a, a hard part of his story to wrestle with. You know, John Newton, we, sometimes we tell the story about Newton like he believed in Jesus, his ship was sinking, and then he left the slave trade industry. He didn't. He continued to trade people, buy and sell human bodies for a living for years after he became a Christian. Sanctification is a process and one that he grew in. And years later, he would write about how he would shake with terrors over what he did, even in his Christian life in the slave trade industry. And of course, he was changed to the degree when about 10 years later, he started really working with William Wilberforce and the other folks to really work toward the um, abolishment of slave trade in the British Empire. But I'm encouraged by that testimony to agree. Hear me rightly in this. God was at work in that man. He was at work in that man, making him more and more like Jesus so that he could do good work in the world. And through that work, he had to see areas of his life that he had to repent of and work through in his own heart in order to impact the world around him. That is our story. That is our story. If you are in Christ and he's showing you areas in your life that need to change, that's a miracle, isn't it? That's a miracle that you are so loved that God would send those things into your life so that you would turn to him and that I would too. I'll close with this final quote from Newton. Famous quote where he said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. And I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I used to be. And by God's grace, I am what I am. Would you pray with me?